Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Francine Foss, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Foss is a professor of medicine in the section of medical oncology at the Yale Cancer Center. Dr. Chagpar is associate professor of surgical oncology and director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. And Dr. Gore is director of hematological malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and this week we begin our series on colorectal cancer with guest host Dr. Howard Hoxter. Dr. Hoxter is Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology, Associate Director for Clinical Sciences, and Clinical Program Leader of the Gastrointestinal Cancers Program at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Hoxter will be talking with Dr. James Farrell. Dr. Farrell is Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases and Director of the Yale Center for Pancreatic Diseases. Here's Dr. Howard Hoxter. So tell me a little bit about uh, what you do for colon cancer and why it's important for people to have colonoscopy. So I'm primarily a gastroenterologist, and within the field of gastroenterology, I'm actually an interventional gastroenterologist or interventional endoscopist, and I form a part of a multidisciplinary team that includes oncologists, uh, radiation oncologists, radiologists, um, uh, that are involved in the management of patients with both colon cancer as well as at risk for the development of colon cancer. So I think there's approximately um, around 130,000, 140,000 cases of colon cancer every year. It's up there about the second or third most common uh, cancer, both diagnosed as well as deaths from cancer, uh, amongst men and women in the United States. And about 50,000 of those individuals will ultimately die from cancer. However, there have been significant improvements in mortality from colon cancer over the last 20 years or so. Some of that has to do with improved treatments from the world of oncology and radiation oncology. But actually, a good chunk of it, I believe, has got to do with uh, screening for colon cancer. And so we know a lot about the molecular biology, the pathology, and the natural history of colon cancer. The colon is about uh, five feet long. It's really kind of the last part of your gastrointestinal tract. If you're going from above down, you know, we start with the esophagus just after the mouth. We head on into the stomach. Then you have a large 20-foot organ called the small intestine, where fortunately not that much happens. Uh, But then you get into the colon, and that's obviously where colon cancer uh, arises from. We talk about colon cancer, but we also talk about rectal cancer. They're really somewhat similar in terms of their their pathogenesis and development, but the rectum, or where rectal cancer arises, is really the last 10 to 15 centimeters of the colon, and you'll hear people talk about them differently in terms of the workup, be it the surgical management or the radiology imaging. So that's that's the last seven inches. That's the last seven inches or so of the the colon. So, uh, but when it comes down to the development of cancer, either in the colon or the rectum, you know, we believe that the pathogenesis and the risk factors are somewhat similar. So what you said before was that the incidence of colon cancer has gone down and the mortality. And so that means fewer people are getting colon cancer and fewer people are dying of it every year, mainly due to screening colonoscopy. That seems to be the main driver. Is that correct? I believe it's, it's probably one of the major drivers. But I think you, can't, you also have to say there have been a lot of great developments in the world of medical oncology and radiation oncology as well, as well as improved surgical technique for patients with colorectal cancer. And that's definitely made an improvement. Well, definitely we've made progress in treatment. But 
the incidence really is a is a result of screening colonoscopies that can remove polyps before they become malignant. Yeah, both colon cancer prevention as well as colon cancer early detection. So we believe that colon cancer, and we know for a fact that colon cancer arises from what are called polyps, and specifically polyps known as adenomatous polyps. Uh, These are abnormal growths of tissue that occur anywhere in the colon. And it takes probably anywhere from about 10 to 15 years or so for an abnormality to develop through the stages of a polyp into colon cancer. It's somewhere in that range of, 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 of years. And so that means that we have an opportunity, therefore, to intervene in that period of time, try and identify these polyps, these adenomatous precancerous polyps, and remove them before they even become a cancer. And that's really where the strength of colonoscopy comes in. So colonoscopy is a screening modality. It's a type of endoscope with a light and a camera at the end of it. It's a very flexible endoscope. It can make its way easily around those five feet of colon that we talked about. It can actually even make it into the small bowel if if needs be. Typically, the patients who are undergoing a colonoscopy are deeply sedated with a medication such as propofol, for example, that allows them to recover quickly after the procedure. And one of the beauties of colonoscopy or direct endoscopic colonoscopy is the ability to see these polyps. These are not the cancers, but these are the precancerous polyps. They can range in any size, anywhere in size from a couple of millimeters up to larger five, six, seven centimeters, in fact. And they can be biopsied to diagnose. That means a piece of tissue can be taken through the colonoscope, a little piece of tissue taken off using a small biopsy forceps and sent to a pathologist to confirm that it, in fact, is an adenomatous polyp. And then for certain types of polyps that are precancerous, we have the ability to actually remove those polyps completely. And I think with time, we were originally very, initially very good at removing small one-centimeter, two-centimeter polyps. Now we've developed techniques and technologies to allow us to remove larger five-centimeter, six-centimeter polyps that in former times we would have sent to surgery for a direct surgical resection. So these are kind of advances that have been going on in the world of both screening colonoscopy and colonoscopy to allow us to do these things. But in general, you want the half centimeter, centimeter polyps or centimeter plus, somewhere between a half to an inch in size. And if you remove those, you really prevent people from getting colon cancer. Correct. I mean, that's the thing. How do we know that? Uh, there's long-term data from screening colonoscopy trials that over time that have shown that people enrolled in active screening, screening colonoscopy trials have a decreased incidence for developing colon cancer over time. And obviously, and then individuals, for example, who've had previous colon cancer or previous colon polyps, when they then are followed up with interval colonoscopy after those events, they also have a decreased incidence of developing colon cancer or even colon polyps. So there's good, strong data to support that colonoscopy works. So, so we have studies that are 10, 15 years old where people got randomized to either colonoscopy or standard care, and the people with colonoscopy really had fewer Correct. incidence of colon cancer and better survival or colon cancer-specific survival based on having undergone this screening procedure. So, I mean, even though it's something that people are a little squeamish about and nobody wants to think about the colon or preparation for colonoscopy or even having a colonoscopy, colon cancer can be prevented 
by colonoscopy by removal of these pre-malignant lesions, these adenomas? You know, absolutely. In the year 2015, uh, we have a prevention technique, colonoscopy, to prevent the development of colon cancer. And compared to a lot of the other cancers that we deal with in the GI tract, for example, esophageal and stomach and pancreatic, we just don't have the same sort of strong screening tools that are available for colon cancer. And so it is certainly our recommendation, the recommendation of uh, the, large, the medical community at large, that people uh, of a certain age and a certain risk profile undergo screening colonoscopy. So who, who are those people? So it all depends on your risk for developing colon cancer. And there are, it breaks down into several groups. The vast majority of people are the groups who are at average risk. So these typically are people over the age of 50, uh, but if you're African-American, we would say over the age of 45, because at, the age of, at, at, th at those ages, the incidence of colon cancer takes off, and um, our goal is to get in at those ages and identify it. So those are for individuals who are otherwise asymptomatic and who don't have any strong family history of colon cancer. Now, if we take a step backwards, obviously, if there's individuals who have symptoms that could be attributable to, attributable to colon cancer, then th those need to be worked up. You need to see your physician, you need to see your gastroenterologist to get those evaluated. They include things such as rectal bleeding, an alteration in stool habit, you know, such as development of constipation, development of what we call obstructive symptoms, whereby there may be a blockage or something similar in the, uh, in the large bowel. So, so those the, are a symptomatic the bowel group. movements change. They, they're thinner. They are more liquid. You can't get it, seem Correct. to get it out. If that's there's something, something new to get that, checked out. That, that wasn't there, that's prolonged, that there's no good explanation for, and obviously, as I said, issues relating to bleeding, uh, those would, would be things that a uh, patient needs to go and see a physician for to get properly evaluated. So those are a, a separate group of individuals. The larger group of people are the people who are completely asymptomatic and don't have any family history of colon cancer whatsoever. And as I said, for most individuals, it's the age of 50 and above. For African-Americans, we would say around the age of 45 and above. So basically every person who's 50 or older, if you're Caucasian or 45 or, or older, if you're Afro-American, should really go for a screening colonoscopy at that point in their life. Correct. And do you have any idea what percent of people actually do this? You know, it's, not, it's certainly not 100%. Um, <laughs> 100%. It's certainly not 100%. And I think it's certainly getting better. There's more awareness of it. Uh, it's probably in the region of 40 to 50% of people, and maybe even lower in certain communities, uh, who are actually availing themselves of colon. It must be the doctors cancer. where it's lower. Because every time I talk about this, I ask people to raise their hand if they're 50 and then keep their hand up if they've had a screening colonoscopy. And usually it's about 10%. Yeah, it's, it's, certainly, it's, no, it's, certainly got, it's certainly gotten better. I think people are more aware of it as, a colon cancer as a as a cancer screening tool, there is a public perception issue of what it entails. I think there's also a lot of confusion in former times of what was available to patients and. Um, for a long time, physicians were recommending a variety of different studies. You know, you could have a colonoscopy, you could have a partial colonoscopy, you could just have your stool checked. Now we're basically saying, look, 
for prevention of colon cancer, a colonoscopy, the standard colonoscopy that examines the entire uh, colon is really the way to go. For people who don't have access to it or are a bit squeamish about it, are there alternatives? Sure. And they include things as sigmoidoscopy, which is a very limited examination. There are also radiology studies such as uh, CT colonography. Um, and there are also less, well, what would be described as less invasive studies, such as examining the stool for uh, blood and now even DNA. But they're not really as solid as, uh, as colon prevention tools as, for example, a colonoscopy. So the number one recommendation is still for a full colonoscopy. So the goal of the colonoscopy is to look for these adenomas and find them. And you said it takes about 10 years for going from when the cell starts to become uh, badly behaved to becoming um, a cancer. So the adenoma is this kind of pre-malignant situation. Um, so what is it? what is, actually happens to the cells? They kind of pile up and make a little stalk-like thing? Yeah, they actually go through a variety of different uh, of mechanisms, and so they actually have a variety of different features that we are now more familiar with. The, the classic um, development of an adenoma, a precancerous lesion, has been something uh, that resembles a polyp on a stalk, so a bulge with a very narrow neck that attaches it then to the colon wall, and that grows over time as the abnormal cells accumulate. But however, unfortunately, what we've also noticed is that a variety of these adenomatous lesions develop in a very flat-like manner that's spread out along the colon wall. And we have become aware of that because initially they weren't recognized, partly because of the technology, partly because a colonoscopy does require the patient to really clean out their colon, to have a nice clean lining so we can see. And also an understanding that there might be different mechanisms and routes for developing these different polyps. So there are many different forms that a gastroenterologist is basically now trained to recognize. And we do ensure that our patients coming in for colonoscopy really have an adequate preparation. But we also ensure that the gastroenterologists who are performing these procedures are aware of the need for good preparation, of closely looking, of optimizing the image. So not only can they see these large polyps, but they can also see these very flat lesions uh, that sometimes are quite difficult to pick up. We, we know stuff about the biology of this, right? There are certain DNA mutations that lead to polyps and then eventually lead the cells to become even more badly behaved, which we call cancer. So we will come back to that uh, after this medical minute. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about colon cancer with today's guest, Dr. James Farrell. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. The Smilo Cancer Genetics and Prevention Program is comprised of an interdisciplinary team that includes geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together with the goal of providing cancer risk assessment and taking steps to prevent the development of cancer. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. James Farrell, and we are discussing colon cancer. So, uh, James, we were just talking about um, DNA mutations. So, 
uh, leading to adenomas or these polyps and then eventually to cancer over a long time period. What, what do we know about that? Yeah, you know, one of the great stories in scientific breakthroughs and understanding really has been in the world of, of the understanding of colon cancer pathogenesis and the work of uh, Burke Vogelstein and Ken Kinsler, uh, who really worked out the steps involved in the molecular development of colon cancer. There are things such as oncogenes which uh, develop, which are genes that ultimately will develop uh, cancers, and things called tumor suppressor genes that really prevent the development of cancers. And as cancers evolve, it's really the, the progression and the activation of an oncogene and the inactivation of a tumor suppressor gene. There's a variety of these genes that have been worked out and identified within colon cancer. Uh, one of them, called the APC gene, the adenomatous uh, polyposis coli gene, um, is one of the major activators that such is a tumor suppressor gene found in colon cancer. And then a variety of other genetic abnormalities develop over time, including mutations in P53, uh, KRAS mutations, also SMAD4 genes. There's also been work done and uh, an understanding in the TGF uh, beta receptor uh, genes that have been involved. Now, a lot of everybody's uh, tumors also... It sounds like a lot of letters. It's a lot of letters, and, and it really just shows that there's a lot of you know different types of soup involved here and that everybody's uh, tumor has a certain degree of heterogeneity, but there's a certain uh, consistency that occurs in certain subgroups. So, for example, uh, about 1% of all colorectal cancers uh, are related to an inherited gene, the APC gene. The entity that evolves out of that is called familial adenomatous polyposis. And so that's a very kind of straightforward, clear understanding of how colon cancer develops in that cohort right. uh, of individuals. There's a variety of other genes involved in DNA repair. So, for example, when we're all replicating our cells inside us, we have incredibly efficient mechanisms for picking up the smallest uh, defects in our DNA and repairing them. When those repair, repair mechanisms are faulty, uh, then, unfortunately, abnormal cells develop, and that's one mechanism by which a certain subgroup of colon cancers particularly the HNPCC or the non-polyposis colon cancers uh, develop. But a lot of work has been done, and it has, it has led to the development of genetic tests, both blood tests as well as some stool studies, but also it impacts ultimately in areas of treatment as well and, and risk stratification. Right. So those are two examples of inherited risk factors for colon cancer, APC and mismatch repair enzyme deficiency colon cancers. But in general, we know that there's kind of a series of DNA mistakes that happen leading to first adenomas and then over the decade. And that's kind of useful information in helping us understand the biology. Oh, correct. In terms of the sequence that occurs, as well as in the use for those tests in terms of diagnostic tests that might be useful to try to identify when a polyp is present or when a cancer is present, for example. So basically, you take this long camera tube thing and put it in the rectum and look at the whole colon. Tell us a little bit about what you actually do in colonoscopy and what people, you know, the preparation that's involved. So as we talked about earlier on, the vast majority of people who are presenting for screening colonoscopy are otherwise healthy individuals and for the first time in their 50s who've either talked to their physician about the need for it or their physician has talked to them about the need for it. And then the next step involves them uh, being referred to a gastroenterologist who would be the expert uh, performing the colonoscopy procedure. Uh, typically, the gastroenterologist would see this individual as an outpatient, talk to them about the 
type of procedure, the risks of the procedure, and the benefits of the procedure. We've talked a lot about the benefits of the procedure here uh, today. There are very small risks associated with this procedure, as there are with any medical procedure that anybody undertakes. Uh, the major risks that we're concerned about with this procedure are actually risks related to the sedation involved in the procedure so that the patient can be comfortable during this procedure. More and more gastroenterologists are involving uh, the use of what's called uh, monitored um, uh, anesthesia using propofol, which is a medication that will allow patients to sleep comfortably through the procedure and wake up very restfully afterwards and go about their, go about their world. Um, so we talked to this and about... And that works very well. It works Personally, for, I can it works, vouch for that. It works very, very well. Um, so we talked to the patients about this before uh, we, we embark on the procedure. The next thing we do is uh, set a date or a time for the procedure. These are predominantly performed as outpatient procedures. Uh, they do not require hospitalization. Uh, we obviously talk to patients about their risk for the procedure in terms of if they have any cardiac issues, if they have any lung issues, if there are any medications that might make uh, the, the procedure more compromised. And we often run into issues whereby more and more individuals are on blood thinners, for example, because they have heart stents or other types of hardware. And we have an ongoing dialogue with their cardiologist about should we stop this medication, should we go forward. After all that's done, we then talk about the preparation. And typically the preparation involves the, the taking of, uh, of a drink um, called Go Lightly or similar types of, uh, of, uh, of liquids that ultimately clean out the colon. And in my mind, that actually turns out to probably be the most unpleasant part of the entire uh, procedure, not so much the procedure itself, but the preparation involved. But as I said earlier, it's very, very important that a good preparation and a good clean-out of the colon take place. And we actually spend a lot of time with patients talking about the importance of uh, what they take in their diet coming up to the time of the procedure, insisting that they do take the entire preparation. We have them fasting for about six to eight hours prior to the procedure. And then they come in on the morning of the procedure fasting. Uh, they meet the gastroenterologist. Uh, they meet the nurses, the endoscopic technicians, as well as the anesthesiologists or uh, CRNAs who may be involved with the procedure. And then the procedure in total takes anywhere from about 30 to 40 minutes or so. Uh, the patient is brought into a dedicated private room that has the flexible uh, colonoscope equipment, and the patient is uh, asleep for the entire procedure. The procedure is not started and the patient is asleep, and then wakes up after the procedure is done. What we actually I, I've seen on TV, sometimes people are awake, though, when they're doing this. So sometimes people will have an option to be either lightly sedated. Uh, there are certain places where people will ha undergo a full colonoscopy without out sedation. And that's a discussion that we can have with the patient. So one of the discomforts associated with the procedure is we need to um, inflate or put air into the colon so that we can really see every crevice, see every turn, see every fold, and make sure there's no small polyps hiding there. That distension of the colon that goes on with air causes some discomfort, and that's the real reason why we uh, offer uh, sedation during the procedure. Now, we can overcome that by removing air intermittently. And we have a discussion with patients, and for sure there are certain patients who want to be awake for it. They want to see what's going on. We're totally okay with that. But, uh, you know, all for patient safety, uh, but it does occur from time to time. So this sounds like a lot of people are involved. You have an endoscopy suite, gastroenterologist, anesthesiologist. That's 
a lot of charges. Does insurance cover this? Yes. So now insurance, both uh, private as well as Medicare insurance, will cover screening colonoscopy, as well as all the follow-up procedures necessary if, for example, a polyp is found or additional testing is done for all the well-defined uh, screening groups that we've talked so about. Since they, they passed the Affordable Care Act, it's covered by everybody. Still covered. Still covered. No, but, I mean, it, it is specifically covered by all insurance now. Yes, yes. So that's, that's um, good news for, I think, people who are interested. Well, it is. I mean, I think it's shown its, uh, its value in terms of uh, mortality and outcome, and I think it would be a, uh, a very, very hard thing to try and knock and to reduce uh, re- you know, uh, coverage for because it is such an effective cancer screening tool. Okay. So um, uh, the preparation, again, your people are drinking liquids for there, a day or so. Yeah, there's you a variety. Go, the, go lightly. It's, it's, there's, there's a variety of preparations that are available, and, you know, they're not for everybody, and so we have different things available depending on what people wish or, or don't wish. The typical one involves the uh, taking of a, a large volume of a, of, a, of a drink called Go Lightly that's really effective in, in cleaning out the bowel. But there are other mechanisms whereby we can give smaller volumes of a drink as well as maybe the use of enemas, sometimes having the patient change their own diet and going on clear liquids mm-hmm. for 48, 72 hours before the procedure can also be helpful. But the goal is really to have a good clean out and a lot of work goes into the education before the procedure to make sure that when we do the colonoscopy that we really get to see every aspect of the, of the colon. If that doesn't happen, unfortunately, we will tell the patient that and say, you know, we didn't get to see all the areas that we really wanted to see and that might result in the patient having to come back after a time and that's why we really stress getting the preparation right up front. So the preparation is to purge all the stool from the colon. It's Correct. you don't If you have solid stool in the colon, it's pretty hard to see what's on it's, there. Uh, yes. If you have solid stool on the morning of the procedure, uh, not only is it uh, make it more difficult to see, it also maybe puts you at a little bit of risk. So we would probably not want to do that procedure uh-huh. on that morning. And so there another test that people are interested in, many people ask about when we talk about this um, this screening is the um, virtual colonoscopy or what the radiologists call CT colonography. So they're really using a CAT scan to take a look at the colon, and they have this really cool software that makes it even look like they're going through the colon the same way a colonoscopy would look. I don't know why they want to do that because they're radiologists and you aren't looking at it, but anyway, they do. So um, what are the pros and cons of that? So obviously one of the major pros of this technology is its non-invasive initial approach. And so CT colonography is, as you said, the use of a regular CT scanner. So the patient would lie, and I've actually undergone some of these myself, would actually lie in a scanner. And um, through the amazing developments that have been in the world of CT imaging, uh, the radiologist is able to reconstruct what the colon looks like, down to small polyps. Now, not very, very small polyps, but maybe polyps that are worth finding, so 5-millimeter or 10-millimeter polyps or so. And actually, as you said, they can recreate what a colonoscopy looks like uh, with flight-through simulation, as you would do with a video uh, you know, uh, flight game. So the benefit, obviously, on one side is it's a non-invasive technology. You're lying in a CT scanner. But, but you, you still really need the same clean-out. If you got stool on the wall, it's even harder to correct. tell the difference, right? So you need stool on the wall. There have been some developments that have tried to uh, tag the stool and then remove it using CT radiology. But ultimately, you do need a good preparation. But also, one of the other big downsides is that if something is found 
Well, you're probably going to need a colonoscopy to find out what it is to do that little do that do that biopsy. So there's many pros and cons. From our perspective, you know, we're still very very strong believers in the endoscopic colonoscopy route, but we do realize that patients are sometimes reluctant or, as you say, maybe squeamish about it by them undergoing some form of screening procedure, such as with a CT colonography, it's certainly be- better than doing nothing. And what we've actually noticed is that uh, since the advent of CT colonography, and it's been around for about 10 or 15 years now, we end up seeing a lot of patients who get referred because they didn't want to have a regular colonoscopy, an endoscopic colonoscopy. They chose to have a CT colonoscopy. Some small polyp was found or some abnormality was found that then convinced them that they needed to go on and have the regular uh, colonoscopy. So I think it's kind of a, a win-win situation for everybody, especially the patients, because more and more of them are getting into this, the, the screening uh, scenario. And you also mentioned about, since we know about the DNA changes, about stool testing. So there's some new DNA tests out for stool detecting cancer too. What do you, how do you feel about stool testing? No, correct. And again, anything that will either get more patients to uh, pursue colon cancer screening or colon cancer detection, I think are worthwhile. Um, and so anything that is less invasive and doesn't require sedation, for example, and cuts down the cost of this overall, I think is a, is a great advance. And so what stool DNA testing has done has really married the technology uh, of, of stool analysis with a lot of the molecular biology understanding of the development of polyps and colon cancer. And what stool DNA testing is that it checks and tests for a panel of DNA markers, some of which are clearly indicated and associated with colon cancer development, some that, are, that have not been directly associated with colon cancer, with a view to uh, trying to diagnose cancers and hopefully polyps. I think at this day and age, stool DNA is, very, is, is useful for colon cancer detection. I think for colon cancer prevention, however, I think it still needs to be, uh, there still needs to be more data. And for, for, yeah. the, for currently, we would still strongly recommend endoscopic colonoscopy over stool DNA testing for that indication. Dr. James Farrell is Associate Professor of Medicine and Digestive Diseases and Director of the Yale Center for Pancreatic Diseases. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.